Oh, man. All right. Inside jokes. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Makes me feel taller when I can do it that way versus first service he put up too high, so I pushed it way down. Made me feel shorter. So anyway. <laughs> Thanks, bro. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here along with Spence, uh, we heard from earlier, but uh, Peter said this too, but we are uh, starting a new series today in the book of Jude, the New Testament book of Jude that will take us through the next three weeks. So a uh, marked difference from our last year, which we were in Genesis all year. Uh, it's going to be um, very uh, much shorter. If you blink, you'll miss it, basically, but you're all here for at least one of these weeks uh, to uh, glean some things from it. But uh, I usually disclaim series by saying we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about some asides of the book, like uh, we'll talk about some uh, date stuff here and authorship and occasion, uh, some things that are important, but not so important that I want to spend a ton of time doing this. So there, there's more to say. If you want to know more about date and authorship and background and occasion and things like that, or maybe even just kind of broader how the New Testament authors um, or these books kind of got into the canon of Scripture, the Bible, or things like that, just let me know. I'd love to point in the right direction in terms of reading or just talk to you about it. That'd be great too. So, um, But we will say a couple of things here on the book um, before we dive in. And so the, the first thing is, it is the second to last book of the New Testament. So if you don't know where it is, it's super easy to find. Basically, just go to the very back, and it's right before the book of Revelation. Uh, it is a general epistle. Epistle means letter. And uh, the idea of general epistle is it's an epistle or, le- or letter that the Apostle Paul did not write. Uh, he wrote 13 of them, the general epistles that kind of fill up the latter part of the New Testament. And they're written by a variety of authors, uh, not the Apostle Paul. Uh, authored by Jude, in this case, hence the title of the book, short for the Greek Judas or the Hebrew Judah. And it's a common name for first century Jews. Uh, the, the particular Jude who wrote this book, though, is Jude, the brother of James. And we'll see that in the first verse in a second, uh, which is likely not the Apostle James, but the half-brother of Jesus James, the guy who wrote the book of James in the New Testament, uh, and which makes Jude the half-brother of, uh, they're both of these guys are the half-brother of Jesus, um, So, um, which uh, means Joseph and Mary's son, to be clear, whereas Jesus was God's son, conceived by the Holy Spirit, James and Jude, uh, same mother, uh, different, different father. So uh, a lot of people like to look at that too and just say that's an interesting argument for the authenticity of Christianity. Uh, you know, since when does a younger brother worship the older brother? You know, at least it never happens like in a family, but these uh, half-brothers were worship, literally worshiping their older brother, uh, which again, it's, if that'll, you can really only explain that if it's true, uh, or so goes the argument. So um, this was written around the mid-60s A.D., just 30 short years after Jesus' death and resurrection and the establishment of the church, uh, two Jewish and Gentile Christians, possibly with an emphasis on the former. Also note that 2 Peter in the New Testament borrows heavily from Jude. So Jude is the older book. 2 Peter was written as a bit of an expansion, a commentary on it. Different arguments, but the same kind of content, which is really interesting. So I'll refer to 2 Peter a lot, but this is just an aside too for you guys as you read the books. Either of these books uh, if you're studying them, you should have the other one probably open before you because they, they can help interpret one another. And so we'll be looking at Second Peter a little bit, not a ton, but a little bit here and there. The, uh, the main interpretational question we'll be asking, as it always is, is, it always should be for a book, is where is the gospel of Jesus Christ in this book, the good news of his death and resurrection? How is that gospel the solution? How is the gospel the background to the occasion? How is it maybe something that's not being lived out? Uh, sometimes in certain letters of, of the New Testament, there's problems that are being addressed. And, and Jude's one of those problems. Uh, Paul has some of this too in some of his letters. 
um, what warnings are in place to those who are perverting or changing the gospel or changing grace. And that last line specifically is the occasion of the letter. So uh, it's important to ask that, ask the why, whenever you look at letters in, in the New Testament. We'll weave together the gospel question with the occasion question. So we can see this quite clearly in Jude. It gets clear on why he wrote. He actually says, you'll see this today, how I wanted to write about this, but something came up. I became aware of some things that now I'm going to switch gears and write about this instead. And so and that has to do with um, individuals, false teachers who are sneaking into the church and leading people astray with kind of half-truth gospels or twistings of grace, or he says pervertings uh, or changings of the doctrine of, of grace. Grace just meaning undeserved merit. The fact that God gives salvation freely as, as an act of kindness. He, he dies for our sins, and it's his work that brings us into, into salvation, into his, his kingdom. It's not ours. And so if, if it were our works, we wouldn't talk about grace. But the New Testament talks about grace because it's, it's an act of God and, and divine power that saves uh, rather than us finding, working, uh, climbing, anything like that towards him uh, with our own moral efforts. So uh, the sermon today then is grace. We'll talk about more about grace. Contending for grace, what it looks like to contend for and assert uh, for the faith, or assert arguments for, for the faith, for grace. And then, like I said, warnings against perverting grace. So uh, four verses today alone. If you want to turn there in, the, in your Bibles or pew Bibles, that'd be great. Uh, if you want to see it in context, uh, your devices, uh, go ahead and turn there. Again, easy to find right at the back of the Bible. But Jude 1 to 4, here we go. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. All right, so what I want to do then today is kind of going back to the title is to break this down. It kind of breaks down basically by verse into three sections. Uh, We're going to look at grace, and in other words, how Jude introduces the gospel and kind of wishes it and prays it uh, onto the church, kind of a la Paul and other New Testament authors do this, and we'll talk about that, kind of summarize the gospel. Then we'll talk about contending for the faith, as he does here. What does that mean, to contend for the faith or to contend for grace? And then we'll talk about the warnings here. And this is a, this is a letter, if it wasn't clear already, a letter of admonishment. It has more of that uh, ilk, more of that feel, more of the sense, uh, sense of warning to it. And so we'll talk about warnings against perverting grace and what it means to pervert or change grace and how to be kind of warned um, against it for ourselves, but as we are, are the recipients, too, of false teachings at times, uh, that's, just, that's just the case. And, and actually, this was written, keep in mind, this was written before social media, right? This was written before blogging and Twitter and, and all that stuff, and so it's actually a, a bigger warning now because we're influenced by outs, more outside voices, which can be a great help, but it can also be a really big danger because, you know, chances are we're, we're gleaning things from people that are half-truths or false truths or aren't helpful. They sound kind of Jesus-y, but they're not really gospel truths. And so we have to all the more be prepared to kind of filter these things and to know what truth is and what what it isn't, what half-truths are and and kind of jettison those 
and accept true grace and, and the gospel. And so, so warnings that are, are very apt, this is very appropriate and applicable for today, but even all the more in one sense because of all the voices out there that are speaking into these things, which again can be a great thing God can use, but also, um, but also a danger. All right, so here we go. Let's start with the first section, which is talking more about grace and looking specifically at how Jude addresses the church. Um, he summarizes the gospel basically on, on a number of levels. He, he starts here by identifying himself as a servant of Jesus and the brother of James. To those who are called beloved or loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. And so, in a lot of ways, it's pretty much the epitome of the gospel, and we'll get to that, but uh, it's interesting how he starts. Even in the way he addresses uh, the church and identifies himself uh, is uh, very gospel-rich. And, and Paul does this too. He, he identifies himself as a servant. Sometimes there, the, the Greek is doulos, which is a common word for servant, sometimes translated slave, but usually servant. And when, when you see that word, and, and you will as you become more of a reader of the scriptures, if you aren't already, so a lot of you are, but if you're not already, you'll see this word as, as um, sort of a title for Christians, and sometimes apostles, or these pastor types especially uh, in, uh, in the book, but it could be applied to all believers. We are servants of Jesus Christ, or servants of God. When you see, though, uh, that word, servant, what you should think of is the idea of belonging to the one we serve. Belonging to the one we serve, not that God needs us to work for him, which is an, an idea that can kind of come along with serving sometimes as though uh, God is more our employer. It's not what's meant. Uh, it's more the idea of belonging to. Uh, and in 1 Corinthians 6 gets at this idea. He says, you, Christian, are not your own, for you were bought with a price, the, and, and the purchase price was the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian, you don't belong to yourself anymore. And we actually, I just kind of say that sometimes when we talk about marriage, how in marriage, when you get married, you kind of lose the rights to your body and to yourself. This is from 1 Corinthians 7 and other places where you basically say, it's not about me anymore. It's about us. And you die, basically, when, you walk, when a bride walks down that aisle or when a groom takes the you know, this stage or something down here. They're basically dying and they're being resurrected into a new entity, mysteriously one flesh. And it's, it's uh, kind of similar with, with the gospel. When we, figuratively speaking, are wedded to God when we marry him, uh, per the scriptures, when they talk about that, God being our bridegroom and, and Christ bringing us to him and Jesus actually being our bridegroom, uh, that we also uh, lose that. And so belonging is kind of the key thing here. Uh, you are not your own, for you were bought with, with a price. So, so servants can remind us of our true allegiance. As we think about that, these are helpful things to think about as Christians. They can remind us of our true allegiance, that we belong to God and not to ourselves or sin or the devil anymore. And it can motivate us to live for him and, and his gospel. And, and like I said, for certain types of Christian workers, maybe if, if they're pastor types or overseers or leaders, they can think about themselves in that capacity, maybe even especially, but again, for, um, for all Christians. But we also need to remember that we're not slaves or servants of God in a working kind of way. We're sons and daughters, not under his employ. We don't work for God in the strictest sense of the word. He's our father. He's worked for us. And we've been given all that we need through his love. In fact, John 15 gets at this. Look, at this is Jesus' words. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, 
I have made known to you. That's the kind of access, the kind of identity we have now as Christians. We are not his employees. He's not your boss. He's your father. He's a lover of your souls. He's more like a friend. In fact, it's more, it's actually more of a New Testament idea to think about God actually being the servant in our relationship. He came to serve us by dying for us on, on a cross. And so when we talk about being a servant, this is from Mark 10, and Jesus says that, I came to serve you, not the other way around. I came to wash your feet. Remember that in John 13 when Peter says that? Well, you can't wash my feet. I should wash your feet. And Jesus says, if, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. You misunderstand why I came. I came to give, pour out myself for you. I came to die for you. I came to serve you. I came to make you basically the more important part in this relationship. I came to die. And so in, in that sense then, we are, we are not the servants God is. And if we understand ourselves as servants, it's not so much as one uh, who works for God, but as one who belongs to him. Then he moves on. And he talks about how Christians are called, loved, and kept. These are wonderful words uh, for Christians to remember. And for those of you who are not yet in the faith, just to know that this is something for you as well. If you believe the gospel, this is indicative of your reality. Uh, you are a called Christian. You are a called one. You are a loved one. You are the beloved. And you are kept or held. So called to salvation, not those who have found salvation, but those that God identified and called out to and said, be saved. Called, not ones who found. Loved, not tolerated. And kept or held, not left unto ourselves after we are saved. And when we, when we talk about kept, you talk about there's an idea of ownership there still too, right? We keep things that belong to us. We hold them close. In that relationship, God is the one keeping, holding. Amazing truth in that. And, and again, this is, these are written to churches you got to think about this, too, when we think about these letters. All these letters in the New Testament are written this way, too, so we're just talking about Jude today. But they're written to Christians in churches, which means they're written to messy people, right? They're like a church like us, like, like a, with different backgrounds and different messes and different sins, different problems, different dysfunctions. So when he says called, loved, and kept, he's saying that to addicts and criminals and liars and murderers and extremely prideful ones, the seethingly angry to husbands who don't lo love their wives that well, but to all those types who have believed in Jesus still, who've repented, they are the called ones. They are the loved ones. They are the kept ones. See, this is identity stuff. If you're a Christian and you're a sinner, which is most of you in the room, uh, all of us are sinners, but Christians, you know, um, then this is true about you. And when you're in the throes of disbelief, when you feel distant from him, when you go the other way, I mean, these are the things you have to remember. I have to remember, you know, that God has not given up, that he's called you, that your, your, your conversion wasn't an accident. It wasn't a figment of your imagination, not something you created on your watch. God called out to you. Like, like, like Lazarus, Jesus to Lazarus, when he was dead in the tomb, he says, Lazarus, come out. Was Lazarus looking for Jesus in his dead state? Was he finding him? Was he working his way towards him? Was he figuring out the theological math? No, 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 and no. He was dead. And so were we in our sins when God called to us and said, live. 
It's not an accident. God does that in love. We are the beloved ones. We are the saints of God. Not because we're good people, because we've been found and loved and held and kept in our dead spiritual state and made alive in his son. And then he says these, these last few words in verse 2, which really flow from verse 1. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So the difference here is pretty similar. The, the difference is the former were descriptors. This is kind of a wish and a prayer upon the church. May peace uh, and mercy and love be multiplied to you. And in a lot of ways, that's the epitome of the faith right there, right? Uh, mercy and peace and love from God through Jesus Christ. And so when we think, what do we pray for? When we pray for other Christians and for ourselves. this is very instructive for us. If you ever feel like you're stuck in prayer, like I don't know what to pray or what to say, what to wish, wish or want or hope for other Christians, my church, as you pray for other Hiawathaites, open the Bible to some of these introductions and open the Bible to some of the actual prayers that maybe Paul prays, for example, elsewhere in the New Testament, we actually writes out his prayer. And pray it word for word. You know, you're not plagiarizing or something. Like, God still hears you. You know, these, these are, you, you know you're at the heart of God, right, when you're praying the scriptures kind of back to him and praying some of these desires that the apostle had for the first century church to our church. So do that. So what do we pray for other Christians? We pray this. What do we wish and hope for them? that they would experience the mercy, peace, and love of God more through their Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what he wants. He wants those things to be multiplied to them. The book does not begin with saying, may law be multiplied to you. May morality be multiplied to you. May your inherent sense of goodness and ability be multiplied to you and for others to look at and kind of gaze at, right? Why, didn't, why do no New Testament letters begin that way? Why is goodness, the goodness of the person, why is the Ten Commandments never kind of wished upon people at the beginning of letters? Why is that? The reason is our faith is not built on those things. We as Christians say we have moved past the law to something better. Like in, in the spirit of how the Old Testament has moved to the new, we have moved on to something better, even better than those things. And those things are good things. We move to something better, uh, Jesus Christ and him crucified. The essence of God's grace, the essence of how he shows mercy and peace and love, they come from the cross. They don't come from the law. They don't come from morality. They come from the cross. And so when we pray, and this is what Jude wants, he wants his church to say, you are these people, you're the called ones, you're the beloved, you're kept in him. We are servants, we, are, we belong to God, Those are, that's our identity. And then he wishes that, that, that gospel upon people by, by saying, this is, this is why we're those things. This is how we're those things. Because God has shown us mercy and peace and love through his son when he died for us on a cross. That's the grace of God. That's the gift of God. So that's how he kind of introduces the gospel or, or um, to a church, we could say, to Christians, reminded, reminding the gospel to them, how he summarizes it, summarizes grace. And then he goes on and, and switches gears in verse 3. So we'll go there next, where he says again, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So as more specific occasion arises here, right? He was going to write about our common salvation, 
which probably would have made this letter sound a bit more like Philippians, if you've read that before, or 1 Thessalonians or Ephesians. It would have sounded a bit more kind of Pauline or a little more common, like a little more, this is the gospel, remember it? Isn't it amazing? And that is in Jude. But something came up, and instead he found it necessary to write a more admonishing style letter to encourage the church to contend for the faith. Two Christians. So keep that in mind, too, as we study this week and the next two weeks, that this is written to a church about people inside the church who are twisting the faith, teaching false doctrine, and leading people astray. That's the occasion. Written to a church, about a church, about people inside the church who are twisting the faith, teaching false doctrine, uh, doctrine just meaning uh, teaching or, or theology, and leading people astray. So, Specifically, then, this is a call to contend for the faith towards other Christians. That's how the first audience would have heard this, is they would have gotten this letter and said, this is, this is the admonishment. Contend for the gospel, for the grace of God. Contend for that theology and that reality towards other Christians who already know it, but who might be being enticed away to believe something that's contrary to it. Major New Testament theme, you guys, if you weren't aware of this especially, but be reminded of that for a lot of you. Uh, there are warnings chock full throughout the New Testament that say this has happened, it is happening, and it will happen uh, to varying degrees in different churches and times and seasons and cultures and, and all of that stuff. But, but this is something we have to have our antennas up for um, to guard ourselves and our hearts and to help guard our brothers and sisters in the faith who might be being t- taught wrong things. So specifically, that's a call to contend for the faith towards believers to teach admonish, encourage, clarify, rebut, and refute, to distinguish, and to display the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ to people. So it's best not to overcomplicate the idea of contending. It looks like asserting this is what the gospel is and this is what the gospel isn't. This is who Jesus is and this is who Jesus isn't. You've heard this, but this is what the Bible really says. Some say Jesus is just a prophet, but we know he is the risen Christ, God's one and only son. Or we contend for the fact that it's by faith. This is the idea of contending for the faith, not contending for the works. So we contend for the fact that it's by faith that we're saved, not by our works, but by faith and trust in the son of God who bled for us. And that we belong to God now based on the fact that we've been purchased back from sin and death. And again, that payment was the blood of Jesus, not our blood and sweat and tears, trying to work really hard. It never says that. It's only God's work uh, for us on on the cross. And so here's the the thing, too, and um, I'm going to say something that's going to sound maybe overly pessimistic or fear-mongering. It's not that, (laughs) but it could sound that way. Um, You know, I think I say this as just another Christian with you, kind of in the journey, but also as a pastor who... um, knows his own sinful heart and just knows more church settings because I meet more pastors every day and or every season and just know more. And part of this is just from reading the Bible too and be the student of the Bible. But um, the statement is this. The church is always a lot closer to becoming full-blown deniers of the faith than it realizes. The, the, the only thing that keeps us in Christ in right, sound gospel teaching is God's grace through believers who actually are contending for the faith. And that might look like us contending for the faith towards ourselves as well. 
So leadership, this is a call to you leaders, but to also all of you teamed up with the church are called to contend for the faith towards one another. If we stop contending, we'll start believing whatever we want. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said that famously, that you know, when people stop believing in God, it's not like they'll believe nothing, they'll believe just anything, which I think is really insightful. We'll believe anything, whatever we want, whatever sounds good. We stop contending for the faith that is. There's no such thing as doctrinal stagnancy with Christianity. Either we're progressing or we're backsliding. There's no standing still. It's kind of like a treadmill, being on a treadmill. Either we're um, moving forward continually, we're, we're walking in the gospel, or we suffer what I call gospel atrophy. We go backwards. And, and here's a particular issue that Jude is writing to warn the church about. It's the idea of perverting grace. Certain people have crept in the church unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So these are people who probably look Christian. They look the part. They're, they're speaking half-truths. Um, and, you know, and so it's, it's not, these are just outside voices of people who are clearly wrong and, and clearly antagonistic towards Christianity. This is happening inside the, the community of faith. And the idea is perverting grace. And so um, I want to look at that phrase, and we'll unpack it. But, I, but start just by noticing, and I've kind of done this already a couple of, from a couple angles, but notice how Jude <laughs> highlights how it's the perverting of grace that's the issue. Grace, God's goodness, his kindness, the fact that we're saved by God's work and not our, not our own. Messing with that is the threat. You know, so Jude, Jude does not say here, you know, certain people have crept in who have told you not to keep the law. Because the law is not the focus of the Christian faith. Grace is. Like, if you're an enemy of something, you're going to attack the core. The core is grace. That's the center. The grace of Jesus Christ. That's the sun and the solar system. You're going to attack that. And that's what's being threatened here. Immorality is not always the main threat. A perversion of grace is, which then can lead to immorality, but also sometimes to too much morality that hijacks the doctrine of grace alone. So what is perverting grace? I think it's kind of both ends of that spectrum that I kind of just alluded to. I think it's believing grace is not enough and also believing grace is freedom to sin. Believing grace is not enough, but also believing grace is freedom to sin. Those two extremes. That's how the, go- the gospel or the doctrine of grace is attacked. It's by, it's by teachings that go to those two extreme ends. So I want to talk about those um, each in, uh, in its own time here. So we'll start with the first one. Believing grace isn't enough. It, it, or he uses the word just simply here, denying Jesus. And, and when he says that, this, of course, does not mean a disbelief in Jesus' existence. Uh, he's writing to a church here, right? Or to spiritual people, at least, inside the church. So it's not about his existence, but what it is, is it's a denial of his absolute power to save by striving to add to his grace. So we seek to add to Jesus' grace, we deny his absolute power to save. We deny Jesus flat out. In Galatians, a uh, different book in the New Testament, Paul says, that you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. 
So look at the black and white nature of that. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. It's not possible to seek to be justified by our works and to cling to grace at the same time. It's, it's theologically illogical. It's, 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 and Paul says here, you, we actually cut ourselves off or divorce ourselves from Jesus. We, we rip ourselves away when we seek to be saved by what we do. By our, he's talking about law here. We could just imply anything. Commandments, you know, our inner sense, inherent sense of goodness, like that actually severs us, us from Christ because Christ embodies the message of the opposite, that we can't save ourselves. So the, the message, the false teaching might be, Jesus is good, but you also need to stop sinning to be saved. That's a perversion of grace. Or Jesus is good, but you also need to fast to be a good Christian. That's a perversion of grace. Or Jesus is good, but you also need to love others better to be a true Christian and to be saved. That's a perversion of grace. When I was in a seminary, this is not a reflection in the seminary, to be clear. I went to Bethel, a great seminary, but someone there who was a peer of mine, uh, just to be very clear on that, uh, a peer of mine there one time told me, and he believed this, um, that Christians, if they're not adopting children, are at the very least immature, if not, at the worst, not saved. And that may sound kind of silly, but I, I, I just say that as an example of that's out there. Like, don't think this is not being taught. Don't think this is not being believed. Jesus is good, but if you're not adopting children or doing everything you can to support that cause, uh, you're not a true Christian. You're not saved. That is a perversion of grace. Perversion of grace. You know, or, or today, um, it's immigration ministry is a big deal, and we love it. We love that many of you guys are involved in that. We support it as a church. Uh, theologically, we believe we are spiritual immigrants and outcasts and exiles before God who has welcomed us back to himself. And so it's important for us. Um, at the same time, if someone were to say, and this is not being said here at this church to be clear, but if someone were to say that those who are not involved heavily in immigration ministry are not Christian, are not, or even aren't mature, that's a perversion of grace. It's untrue. You don't need to do it to be saved. Jesus, that's adding, that's severing ourselves from Christ. That's adding a work or a cause. It's adding activism onto the simple statement that Jesus' death on a cross alone saves us from eternal death. So that's the first thing. Believing grace is not enough. When we add to it, and then by adding we're kind of subtracting, so everyone will look at that. We deny Jesus Christ his absolute power to save, and we sever ourselves from Christ, and we fall away from grace. We're falling away from the truth that God loves us, and he's died for our sins and he's come to get us and rescue us and show us mercy and bring us in. All, all that stuff we talked about to begin the sermon. The second side, though, the other extreme is believing grace is freedom to sin. Or he says sensuality. Perverting grace into sensuality is the phrase that uh, Jude uses. So the, the logic goes like this. If grace is a free gift and it's never based on anything that I do, then why don't I just keep on sinning? You know, it's kind of a, uh, it's, it's a selfish argument, of course, but it's a, it's a lustful one, a sensual one, but it's an embracing of sin one. It's kind of a, you know, have, have my cake and eat it too kind of thing. 
Romans 6.1 actually poses the question, which is interesting because Paul, um, who wrote this book, he spends five chapters just pouring out the gospel and talking about how much it's not by works, how much it's by grace. And he's talking about it so much that he actually anticipates in his letter that some people are going to ask invariably at this point, well, wait a minute, if that, then this, right? And the this is, why don't we just sin? And so it actually poses the question, which is a great teaching paradigm, poses the question right in the Bible, right in the letter to the Roman church. And he says, some of you right now are thinking this. So he says, what shall we say? Are we to continue in, because of grace, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Do you remember his answer right after that? May it never be. By no means. Or there's a, um, a Bible called, uh, or a version called the Cotton Patch version of the Bible, which is hell no. He says, <laughs> hell no is his answer. So anyway, it exists. Um, but the, the problem with this is twofold. The problem with this, the problem with this false theological logic is, is twofold. One, it, it denies the doctrines, the related gospel doctrines, I'll say, of the resurrection, what that means for our life, relatedly union with Christ and the Holy Spirit's presence in us, among many other things. Those are aspects of the gospel. Jesus, you know, God just did not take an eraser to our sin. He raised us from the dead. He himself raised from the dead, and then he raised us spiritually with him. So we've become one with him. We are unified in spirit with Christ himself. Uh, Galatians 2 has this, has this great phrase how when we believe the gospel, we, it's as if we died and we're, we're crucified with Christ and we died. Our old self died. When he rose up, we are, we are one with his experience. We're, we're unified with Christ. So we too spiritually were raised into new life and we are new creations. He's made us brand new. We've been born again. He's actually, Ephesians 2.10 says, he's actually created good works for us to walk in in Christ. And so if all of that is true, how can we not live as though it's true? Right, these, these are identity questions again. Our, our behavior will follow our beliefs. Our beliefs dictate our behavior. So what you believe about yourself um, will dictate how you live. It, it, who are you, Christian? And that's what the Bible talks a lot about, identity issues. Who are you in Christ? Who, you have a new name. The Holy Spirit of God is actually in you right now seeking to work out good works today. You know, if we actually believe that, we kind of look for opportunities. We keep in step with that reality. Uh, Galatians 5 says, keep in step with the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. It's a paraphrase, but that phrase, keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Keep in step with what he's doing. So that's going to be imperfect, of course, but the idea is Christians live intentionally with that new identity. We, we live it out. And we're thankful for it because it was a gift. And if we really believe that it's a gift and, and part of the gospel, then it's inconsistent with this gospel sensuality, this freedom to sin, sin embracing. Oh, I found a loophole. God said grace. I'm going to find the loophole. I can just live over I want. He's got to twist his own arm in the end, you know, kind of thing. He's got to save me, he promised. Like we can't actually do that because it's, that's not the whole gospel. The gospel is is the destruction of sin, the forgiveness of sin, the erasing of sin, the looking away from sin, the forgetting of our sin, because Jesus died for it in our place. And, but it's also the power of God and the resurrection to have a new life and live it today. But it's him doing it, right? 
He rose, and he brought us into that resurrection spiritually. He lives in us, so it's him doing the good works, not us. So it's a gift. If we believe in that gift, it's part of the gift we receive when we believe the gospel. Um, all these things, and these are all separate sermons, by the way, just a really quick bullet point things. There are more we could say, but if we believe those things as well, um, it, it is a problem. It, it creates a problem then with the statement, oh, I can just sin. Let's just continue in sin that grace may get bigger. So that's the first problem with it. The second problem is uh, it foolishly does not allow the heart to be shaped by divine kindness. This kind of relates, but um, in, in Luke 7, 47, Jesus says, He who is forgiven little loves little. So what, what he's saying there is not, not, not that God dispenses little forgiveness to people sometimes. He's saying people understand the forgiveness is small. And when they understand it is small, they're not shaped by it. So and this is a human experience too, right? If we're shown a lot of generosity and we know that, we're impacted by it, we're much more likely to show that generosity to other people, right? How much more than if God's the one showing generosity? How much more should that wreck us? God's kindness that's not deserved on any level because we've sinned against a holy God, how much should that slowly, systemically, over the years especially, break into these hard hearts, right? And, and shape them and create good works, not because they begin here, but because he's created a soft heart towards his gospel and his grace. So flip this around, it says, he who knows he has been forgiven much, not only forgives much, but lives in light of that forgiveness, and actually as a byproduct of belief, sins less. This is what we call a, um, a gospel-motivated Christian ethic. It's the idea that our, our good works, our changed lives, do not come from us, nor are they required to be saved, but they come as a byproduct of faith and amazement at the grace of God towards us that we just did not deserve. It's a byproduct of saying, isn't Jesus amazing? He really, really is. And, um, and then praying, God, I don't feel that now. Help me to feel that. Help me to believe that more. If you want to change your life, it starts and, and it continues and it ends there. It doesn't just start. It continues throughout life. Knowing the grace of God, how much we've been forgiven, frees us, changes us, shapes us by, by kindness. Actually, Romans 2.4, I think, says um, that by God's kindness, he, uh, he leads us to repentance. God's kindness. Where does he show us kindness? To the, to the fullest? On the cross. By dying for us. His kindness there then kind of woos us. It, it leads us to repent. Re just repent means to turn away from the old way of living unto new identity. Turn from sin to Jesus. From old to new. So, what, so what's wrong with twisting grace into sensuality? It's not really possible. For liars, maybe, but not for someone who has truly been wrecked by grace. And, and to be clear here, I'm not, I'm not talking about sin in general, because all Christians will their whole lives be sinners. We're saved by grace, not by works. We're sinners. Just acknowledge that. I'm not talking about sin in general, because all sin. I'm talking about the belief and the propagation 
of the theology that we can just sin freely without consequence because of grace. That's inconsistent with the reality that God is actually raising people from the dead spiritually, wrecking, you know, doing all that union with Christ stuff, giving the Holy Spirit, but also wrecking people with amazing grace, bringing people low and humbling them so they could be built back up in his, in his love. You know, it, it would, to live contrary to that would be like a father or a mother forgiving their child for accidentally felling a tree onto their car and tolling it. And then the, the forgiven child saying, well, awesome, they just deal out forgiveness. I think I'm going to go out now and fell another tree on their other car. <laughs> you know, like, that would never happen. Or if it did, it would say the child is extremely wicked, right, and ungodly and just stupid. But it would say that he wasn't shaped by his father and mother's forgiveness. Right? He wasn't impacted by it. And that's the danger. That, that actually can happen to Christians that can ha- or to people who are approaching the cross and maybe never get there. Is, you know, we're not, we're not, we, we're not, we taste, but we don't eat. We kind of see, but we don't fully take it in. We, we, we kind of hear, but don't truly listen. And, and, and if that happens, um, you know, the, the danger is we'll leave and truly never come back because we think we've partaken and we actually haven't. You know, in, in Matthew 18, if you want to read this sometime, I'd encourage you to. It's a parable I'll summarize. But Matthew 18, 21 to 31, uh, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is kind of like this, and it starts that way a lot. But he says, it's like a guy who uh, was forgiven 10,000 talents worth of debt, which to do a little Google translation there is uh, basically 60 lifetimes of salary. And he's in prison. So the point is, impossible to pay him back. And he cries out for mercy. And the, the king says, because you cried out to me, because you've, you, you've cried out, and because I want to show you mercy as a king. So he gives mercy and he eliminates the debt. Then the guy goes out who was forgiven, and he chokes one of his servants who owed him a debt, who owed him pennies. He says, pay me back my debt. And the conclusion, the teaching point for Jesus at the end is, that person did not understand the grace he was shown. And he was never actually saved because he didn't understand forgiveness. Like if we're not showing forgiveness, if we're not wrecked and, and amazed by this grace, if it's not impacting our heart, you know, and affecting good works in our life, ultimately love, then did we really understand it in the first place? Probably not. So where do good works come from? Uh, From being crushed by the beauty of how much we've been forgiven. That's where they come from. For that's where the freedom to love comes from. So as you think about this then, um, just as we go here, uh, you know, is ask yourself this, and and indefinitely, I mean, ask yourself this right now, but but ask yourself this all the time. This This is the the admonishment of Jude, of God through Jude. Is Jesus and his grace are the point? So is grace everything or just something for you? I mean, either Jesus is everything or he's nothing to you. He can't be in the middle. That's the point of Galatians 5. He's everything or if you seek to add to him, he becomes nothing. We sever ourselves and we fall away from grace. So 
is he everything? Is grace everything or just something? Is grace just an idea? Or is it the power of God in your life and does it compel you and does it humble you? You know, there, there's, a, there's a warning here, and we'll continue, continue with this next week, but to watch out for the ungodly who cheapen and pervert grace, either by adding to it or reducing it to a license to sin freely. Which are you more inclined to believe? Jesus and his grace are the point. This is, kinda, this is hard stuff to hear, and it can be sort of fearful, but don't be afraid, because the point is, uh, well, part of the point is all of us are saved by by grace, and sometimes, a lot of times, in, in spite of our bad theology, right? Now it's a perfect theology. So we're saved by grace. Run back to Jesus, and don't fear. Let that perfect love he shows you drive out fear. Stay in the faith. Don't add to it. Don't subtract from it. Don't abuse it. Don't hijack it. Humble yourself before the cross and live in the shadow of his kindness all your days, and contend for that idea. Uh, help others to see it. If they're wandering from the faith, some of you might be today, um, if you know someone who is, love them. Contend for the fact that God loves them. Contend for the fact that they, when they believe, are kept and they can never lose it. Contend for the fact that God wants to hold them, that they, are, that, that they belong to God and, and not their old way of living and their doubts and disbeliefs and identified by that. But if they have a mustard seed of faith, they can be saved. Contend for that. And contend for it in your own heart as well. For our hearts are deceptive above all things. Jeremiah 17 says, our hearts are deceptive above all things. And they're, they're inclined to listen to things that are self-glorifying. And are just wrong. And not really about God. Because at our core, we all rebel against him. And we don't want to fall under his rule. So watch the heart, watch others' hearts, contend for the fact that God is good and he has died for our sins and that is enough. So believe in him today. Let me pray. God, thank you for the gospel in the book of Jude and the warnings, the related warnings that we're getting, God, and we're going to get next week in the following that this is happening uh, in the global church. It's happened throughout all history. Churches have always had people... Um, either in them at, at all times or sometimes or people out, voices outside the church that they're kind of entertaining, what, whatever the case may be, just false doctrines that kind of sound right in some ways and are being entertained and sometimes just fully believed in and people fall away. So God, protect us from that. Um, be all around us, God. Uh, be our, our stalwarts. God, be, our, be at our right hand and God, just guard us and protect us and feed us truth. Um, I pray we'd be Jesus people here ultimately, God. Our lives can look a lot of different ways spiritually, but may we, be, may we have a legacy as a church for being all the time and in every way about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Unashamedly, we are Jesus people. Uh, he is our God, our King, our Master, our Lord. All strength and might are due, due you, Jesus. And we worship you and we thank you for saving us when we couldn't save ourselves. So thank you that it's by grace, not works, that we're humbled in that, we're kept low in that. We decrease in that so you can increase and get big in our life and identify us as servants, ones who belong to you, ones who've been shown mercy, called ones, kept ones, held ones, loved ones. That is who we are as sinners because of the blood of Jesus. To help us to respond now, God, in song and to leave encouraged.
Christ's name.